Welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta, and this is the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, and Jason Lemkin of Sasta. And you can find us on our respective platforms with me on Snapchat at HStebbings with two Bs, and Jason on Twitter at JasonLK. However, forget platforms. We want to see you in person. We want to hang out and have mojitos. And now we can, because Sasta Annual 2017 is coming, and we would so love to see you there. So all you have to do to get access to one of the hottest tickets in town are mojito parties of course, is enter the promo code drinks with Harry. those three words drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets and you'll get an incredible 20% off the ticket price and even more exciting, a free happy hour of mojitos courtesy of Mr. Jason Lemkin. Thank you so much again, Jason. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome a true master of their field with our guest today really being a leader in paving the way for the rise of SaaS digital marketing. So we welcome David Brunitsky. Now, David is founder and CEO of 3Q Digital, a leading digital agency that was acquired by Hot Tanks in 2015. And prior to 3Q Digital, he held senior marketing roles at several internet companies, including Rentals.com, Find Law, Adderactive, and Mercantilla. And David currently serves on advisory boards for several companies, including Marin Software, Media Boost, Media Cause, and a stealth travel startup. However, enough from me, and I'm now delighted to hand over to David Brudnitsky, founder at 3Q Digital. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. David, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, David. Great to be here, Harry. Harry, thank you for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today with the story of you and how you made your way into the SaaS industry and then came to found 3Q. Yeah, so I um, graduated from law school in 1999 in Iowa, decided I didn't want to be a lawyer and I wanted to be someone on the West Coast. So I just basically packed up my bag, moved to San Francisco. Um, I was lucky to get um, a couple jobs where they were looking for warm bodies to just kind of help out in the early dot-com days, learned on other people's dimes how to do all sorts of online marketing, in particular search engine marketing. By about 2007, I was ready to try to do my own thing. So I, I left my last company, set up a shop in a coffee shop in Pacifica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then people just kept reaching out to me and asking if I could help them with their online marketing. Uh, many of these companies were uh, SaaS companies. I was able to learn a fair amount from working directly with SaaS companies. In fact, one of my very first clients was actually Jason Lemkin's company, uh, EchoSign, which was later acquired by Adobe. And then, uh, you know, company grew from just me to um, today we have about 200 people. We are a part of a public company, Hart Hanks. We offer pretty much any form of online performance marketing that drives revenue for people um, to our clients. And before we dive into the meat of strategies and, and marketing tactics, I think it's quite important. You said obviously there about kind of your servicing mostly SaaS clients in the early days. Uh, I'd love to establish first then what SaaS marketing really is for you. For me, it's it's sort of a combination of consumer marketing and enterprise marketing. So when we are marketing for SaaS companies, um, on the one hand, um, especially when you're dealing with um, SMB or mid-sized companies, people um, looking for SaaS services really act like consumers in a lot of ways. They'll do a specific search. They'll type in electronic signature or how do I make my payroll run more efficiently, et cetera. That's very similar to the way a consumer would make a decision about about choosing a product. But the flip side of that is that the decision-making process is much longer than what a consumer would do in in terms of choosing a pair of shoes or something like that. So what we tend to see is that the latency to purchase is much longer, and that means that you have to get involved in nurturing and soft-selling on the initial connection to the, the purchaser. 
So it's a it's a strange strange mix is the answer, and uh, it's the best way to describe it. Is you need to be pretty good at consumer marketing, you need to be pretty good at enterprise marketing to really make SaaS marketing work. And in terms of the cycle itself, that you said it's uh, slightly lengthened. What does that cycle look like then? And how high an ACV do you think you need to have to really warrant the nurturing and the kind of funnel that ensues to make it worthwhile? Yeah, that's a that's a complex question. Um, I think, uh, first of all, um, SaaS is such a broad concept. You know, you can have some SaaS products that are charging $19 a month and consideration cycle is very short um, and you're not going to spend a lot of time nurturing. And you can other, have other SaaS products that are $50,000, $100,000 a month where obviously there's going to be much longer behavior and you can invest a lot more. You know, and then I think I think you know, from an ACV perspective, a lot of the nurturing that can be done these days can be done really through automation. So you can use uh, marketing automation and, um, you know, Combine it with your CRM system, maybe even use some of the account-based marketing tools that are coming out. You don't need an army of folks to be calling people up or you know dropping off um, cupcakes to someone's door. Um, a lot of this can be done in a very automated and almost algorithmic fashion. So I don't think there's a there's a minimum number. I mean, I think you, you, you look at companies that are charging $20, $50 a month, and they have pretty sophisticated uh, nurturing models, but they don't cost a lot to implement. But before our hypothetical SaaS company starts spending heavily then on marketing, I'm intrigued to hear what gating factor should the SaaS company itself consider and think about pre-spending big on marketing. Yeah, this is a good question because um, as an agency guy, you would think that I would want to tell every SaaS company they should immediately dive in and cut checks for fifty or $100,000 a month for online marketing. And I, I actually don't think that's the case. I think there are a lot of basic fundamentals that SaaS companies need to set up before they invest in marketing. And I'll just give you a few of them. One is I think you need to make sure that you're economics are as good as your competitors. If you are not making as much margin or as much revenue or much as much LTV as one of your competitors, it, it means that your competitors are going to be able to outspend you online because almost on, all online marketing is auction-based. Getting your numbers in, in line is very important. Um, secondly, I think you need to have a great conversion funnel. Being able to test different landing pages, different checkout funnels, different marketing automation funnels. Um, if your conversion funnel isn't as good as competitors, your competitors are going to beat you. I would say thirdly, having the right offer is important. On the internet, competitors are only a click away. So if you're selling SaaS software for Blue Widgets at $19.95 a month and your competitor is selling it at $5 a month, it's not going to take very long for um, your your customers to figure out that they can save 75% off your price and they're going to go somewhere else. So make sure the offer is comparable. The last two I'll say are um, making sure that you actually have marketing expertise, either internally or as in hiring an agency. Um, a lot of people think that online marketing um, is a matter of just uh, buying some keywords and turning on some automated bidding and everything works itself out. Obviously, um, that is not the case. Uh, Online marketing is easy to do, but hard to do well. So being able to assess your expertise internally is important. And then finally, being able to collect and analyze data. You may have the best um, marketing strategy in the world, but if the data you're collecting is fundamentally wrong, you're going to make bad decisions. It's, uh, as we say, it's garbage in, garbage out. These are all things you need to figure out before you um, spend a dime on your um, marketing costs. And once you figure those things out, then um, that's the time when you want to start making your first investment. You said there about doing marketing well. What would you consider success in marketing? Is it all about sheer conversion and numbers or could it be about brand recognition too and kind of wider reputational success? 
Um, I think it can be both. We're really driven by the numbers. Someone gives us $100,000, and if we can drive them $120,000 revenue from the $100,000, they're pretty happy. But absolutely, um, if you have the right key performance indices in place that are driven around brand, and you can quantify the value of the brand advertising that you're doing and, and turn it back into revenue, that's perfectly appropriate as well. Where I, where I sort of become a little dubious of, of brand advertising is when people say, oh, well, I spent a million dollars, and my awareness in my industry went up 3%. And I say to them, is that good or bad? And they don't know because they haven't connected the dots between the brand metric that they're measuring and the amount of money they spent and trying to come up with a metric around it. So uh, the answer can be one or both or neither. Um, it just has to be um, based on rational um, uh, metrics that you're, you're trying to optimize for. And you mentioned about online marketing and it's easy to do, but difficult to do well. Uh, well, I've got a question from one of your early advisors, I think it is, Peter Pham, who asks, huh? in this changing marketing landscape, how do you look to understand Understand customer acquisition around Facebook, and how have you seen the transition from SEO to SEM to social SEM? Yeah, well, I mean, I I've never heard that term social SEM, but you know, Peter's a deep thinker, so he's probably years ahead of me on this. Um, <laughs> but uh, what what I would say is this: um, one of the things that's been great about Facebook, whether it's for SaaS or for any other form of business, is that it's the best way to reach people who are not specifically looking for your product but need your product. So if you go back to Peter's question about SEO and SEM versus social, SEO and SEM are what I describe as demand fulfillment mediums. So someone raises their hand and says, "I am looking for blue." Widget SaaS software. And that's obviously awesome. And those people were, you, you absolutely want to be in front of, and the conversion rates are great and the lifetime value is great, et cetera. But that's usually one in 10 people who are potential customers. The other nine customers are people who probably don't even know that your software exists. But if you put a mes- message in front of them in a targeted fashion and they start to read about it, they may convert. And that's where social becomes so powerful. Facebook has built incredible algorithms designed to reach people who are like your most successful existing customers. Being able to get in front of someone when they don't, they're not actually looking for your product, but you can you know, encourage them to take a look and then convert them. Like I said, that's potentially 90% of the business. The, the stuff that we used to do in the old days with SEO and SEM, which is still very powerful, is not going to be the breakthrough traffic that you might see from the social stuff. So very important today. And, and discussing Facebook there as a marketing channel, I'm intrigued now we've discussed the gating factors, and I'm interested to hear what marketing channels should a SaaS company consider as must-haves compared to potentially nice-to-haves. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I actually surveyed my team on this very topic, and I, I asked them um, to rank rank order uh, marketing channels for SaaS companies. Now, I'll just tell you the the top five that came off the uh, rankings. Number one was SEM, and that, those are those hand raisers that we just talked about. Number two, which is not really a channel, but more of a competency, is analytics. So we talked about this earlier as well, the garbage in, garbage out scenario of not being able to understand the data that you're getting. Number three is SEO. Again, more hand raisers, but this is from the organic side, making sure that when someone does a search for a product that, that you offer, that you're showing up in the natural listings on Google. Number four is conversion rate optimization. We talked about this as well. And then the last one that they listed was email marketing. And I think what this really means is the whole nurture element, the marketing automation, the scoring of users, and then sending different emails to try to um, prompt them to move through, through the funnel more effectively. I will note that um, paid social, which we just talked about, was not in the top five, but it was in the top 10. I don't want to diminish the value of paid social, but these were the five that my team um, emphasized for SaaS uh, marketers. Do you still see real inherent value in email marketing? Often uh, we hear of its diminished importance in the kind of rise of just so many people doing it in such a crowded space. Do you still think there's inherent value to email marketing if done right? 
Well, I mean, I think email marketing is something that people have been forecasting the death of for about 10 years now. And it's the energizer bunny of uh, marketing. It just keeps going and going. So, you know, absolutely, there is a lot. There are a lot of different ways that people are being bombarded with messages today. Email, social, search, SMS, etc. But email is still really effective. It's it's funny. I mean, it's uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, one of the areas that, that we're starting to see a lot of growth in and opportunities for, for clients is direct mail. Direct mail has uh, been uh, declared dead probably five times in the last 20 years. But what, what's interesting that we see happening is people put so much emphasis on the, the latest and greatest marketing technique, whether it's SMS or uh, video or something else, and they start to neglect these tried and true techniques. And that creates an arbitrage opportunity where people are spending less time on the old school marketing and your message that you send through those channels now becomes even more powerful. And I think also because direct mail is now such a neglected space, there's so few people doing it that when you do receive it as a consumer, it's got a much greater effect on you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I hate to admit it, but I read all the direct mail I get because I don't get that much anymore. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm the same. I will say uh, absolutely the number one channel I, I have to mention is podcast podcast is where all the action oh yeah i mean you know you're my favorite guest david uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'd, yeah. lo- I'd love to dive into a quick fire with you uh called 60 second saster so i say a statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts how does that sound Let's do it so your favorite marketing resource or tool this could be a book uh blog plugin what's your favorite my favorite is a book by uh, Robert Cialdini called Influence. It outlines the five or six ways that humans are biologically designed to reply, respond to certain marketing techniques. Fun fact, uh, the first ever podcast interview I did, I asked Guy Kawasaki, what was your favorite book? And he said Robert Cialdini, uh, Influence. So there you go. Uh, clearly, wow. great minds think alike. Exactly, exactly. Uh, what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started uh, not so long ago in the coffee shop? Well, that's a good one. I think um, the mantra, um, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. I think when I first started, I just assumed that the agency with the smartest people and best processes and best results would always win. Um, and I think I've learned um, through the rough and tumble world of business that you got to put a little bit of um, window dressing around everything you do to get people's attention and to overcome FUD, which is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This absolutely applies to SaaS companies as well. I'm sure every SaaS company out there looks at their competitors or the in the space and says, we're just better than these guys. Our software's better. Our pricing's better. Why are they beating us? And, you know, as I said, it's it's not what you deserve. It's what you negotiate. And that's been a big lesson for me. I can't resist asking this one. Not in the schedule, but I can't resist. What's key to, uh-huh. a, good, what's key to a good negotiator? Oh, what's key to a good negotiator? I think um, w- one of the things I've learned is, is it's just a matter of having a little swagger when you come into the negotiation. And, I, and I'm speaking specifically to me as an agency, but we've had some competitors that used to be bigger than us and we passed them by in terms of uh, size and client prestige and et cetera. And one time one of my clients you know, asked me, he said, how do you win so many sales? And I said, well, I come into a meeting and I assume that um, we're the best agency in the world. And if the client doesn't choose us, it's their loss, not our loss. And I, and I genuinely really believe that. I mean, obviously it's my loss if I don't win a client, but I generally feel like if someone decides to choose another agency, then someone once said that uh, clients get the agency they deserve. So yeah, so I mean, I walk in, I from a negotiation perspective, I walk in with the attitude that um, if you're really smart, you're going to work with my agency. And if you don't want to work with my agency, that's fine. I wish you luck, but it hurt you in the long run. But then let's do the biggest mistake current SaaS companies are enacting with their marketing strategies. It's a good one. I mean, I think that that it, we talked about some of the gating factors, and I think all of those drive the big mistake, which is not digging down into the detail. Success in online marketing is continually looking for more and more advantages from data analysis. And that means having the best 
salespeople, having um, constant testing of everything about your business from your, your offer to your landing page to your the people that are running your campaigns, the channels you're using. Um, so when people sort of get complacent and they say, oh, well, this is working pretty well. Let's just, well, let's just sell for good enough and not keep trying to dig deeper and deeper and get better and better results. I think that's when you see companies that start to stagnate. Unfortunately, um, you know, Silicon Valley is littered with the corpses of a, of a lot of companies with great potential that rested on their laurels. I'm intrigued by one aspect there in terms of hiring the right people and not in a quick fire. So, so no need for 60 seconds. But you said about increasing the team, sorry, to, to over 200 now uh, from you yeah. from you in the coffee shop. So talk to me about that hiring process, how it was scaling up the team and what you looked for in those initial early hires. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, we could talk about this for probably five hours um, because this is an area that I'm very passionate about. I'll say a couple of things. One is I um, have been inspired by um, the Netflix cultural manifesto, you know, that I consider to be required reading for anyone who's starting a company. Um, but one of the things that I think is um, great about that manifesto is uh, the, the concept of above average performers deserve above average compensation and average performers deserve a generous severance package. And we really try to live that, live by that. And uh, Harry, you're, you, you being a, a Brit, I always use the analogy of um, if you have 11 people on your on your soccer team or football team, as the case may be, eight, eight of them are A players and three of them are B players. What ends up happening is the A players have to step out of the position to support the B players. It would actually be better if there were the B players weren't even there because, well, from a soccer perspective, you'd have more spacing, but also the A players could just focus on their job. We take the approach of uh, hire slow and fire fast. We're really relentless about just making sure that everyone in the team is an A player. The other thing we do is that we have um, very strong core values that we've established in the company and that we literally based our hiring and firing decisions, promotion decisions, you know, we just really, as a company, we really talk about our core values. So um, the number one core value of the company is we call it own it. What that means is when we're looking to hire someone, we want someone who's going to act like whatever they do, it's their, it's their own personal small business. So we look for people who want to be owners, who want to be entrepreneurs almost within a company. And as I said, when someone gets promoted in the company, we do in all hands, we talk about the why they got promoted based on the five values. It could be one or several of the values. So the combination of culture and rigorous hiring and firing, I think, is what keeps us being able to grow with uh, maintaining quality. Uh, I do want to finish, though, on a meta question on the marketing landscape now. And having seen its evolution firsthand from the coffee shop to now being acquired and within a company, how do you assess the evolution of the, the wider marketing landscape and its evolution over the last 10 years? It's a good question. We are we are moving towards um, increasing fragmentation and increasing automation. So from a fragmentation perspective, the number of channels someone has to consider in marketing has gone from maybe two or three SEO, SEM to probably 20 or 30. Um, if you just want to take, for example, audio related marketing, I mean, it used to be that no one in the SaaS world would do anything with audio. Now you have a lot of companies doing podcasts, doing streaming music, doing terrestrial radio and doing Sirius XM. That's just four areas in, in one sub-channel, you know, one channel, four sub-channels, and, we're, and we haven't even reached all the other 20 or 30 channels we could talk about. Um, and then from an automation perspective, we are getting access to, as marketers, to big data, to machine learning, to um, really advanced algorithms that look at both offline and online marketing and try to combine it all, do cross-device functionality, online to offline measurement. So the marketers today are not just people who come up with creative taglines and nice images. They have to be data wonk that can dive deep into um, data, um, program, program, program the machines, almost be cyborgs to be successful. 
successful. Fragmentation automation, that's where I see a lot of focus uh, going forward. I would love to finish there, but I can't because I have to ask, do you think that fragmentation is good? Does it not detract from kind of the single-minded focus and, and vision uh, that is often spouted as the key to success? Can it not be too fragmented? That's a good question. You know, I think, first of all, just because a new channel exists doesn't mean that you have to market in it. Um, so I think you have to always prioritize. I have this concept that I call the arc of internet marketing channel adoption. And I say there's three stages to any marketing channel. The first stage is no one cares, no one spends any money. And uh, that may be, let's call that podcasting in 2005. The next stage is everyone cares, no one spends any money, which is that means you're going to get a keynote to talk about your podcasting marketing brilliance, but no one is going to actually um, allocate budget to podcasting. And the last stage is no one cares, everyone spends money, which means that now it's been an established channel. No one no one actually wants to talk about it as a sexy new thing, but it's, it's become mature and it's an investable opportunity. Um, so I think you have to sort of think about all this fragmentation and, and, and think about what is what is real, what where is their actual opportunity, and where is their early stage fluff that you can sort of let other people figure out. The other thing I'll say about your question is fragmentation is a can be really positive because we get down to these minute sub-channels where you can really target very specific consumers. So obviously, if you want to target SaaS consumers, there are very there are great SaaS podcasts and there are great SaaS newsletters and there are probably SaaS SMS services that exist. Uh, yeah, or there's the whole account-based marketing where you market to 100 people, whatever it is. I mean, the, the downside is it just becomes harder to handle all of it. But the upside is if you pick your battles properly in terms of the maturity of the channel and also the granularity of the audience, you could say that this is the golden age of being able to have one-to-one marketing with people who are specifically the right customers for your business. David, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. It really has. Uh, and I'm so grateful to you for giving up the time. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Harry. It feels like we're, we're all friends. It feels like we've talked for days and days. <laughs> What a fantastic episode with David, and now we are old friends, and I want to say a huge thanks to him for giving up the time today to come on the show, and to Jason Lemkin for making the introduction to David, without which the show would not have been possible. And do not forget, we want to see you at Sast Annual 2017 for our Mahiso party, so all you have to do is enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY when you purchase your Sast Annual 2017 tickets in February. Drinks with Harry, and you'll get 20% off the ticket price, and an incredible ticket to our special Mojito party. Free drinks on Jason Lemkin, how can you resist that? As always, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode with Unicorn founder Ryan Smith at Qualtrics.